0: Hello, and welcome to the Basic Business Thinking Podcast brought to you by theconciliori.com. This is Nico Scopoliti, and today we're going to be focusing on business cycles, success in both bear and bull markets. Before we get into it, let me set the stage by explaining that the purpose of this series is to help business people who may be stuck working in their business to enter into the mindset of working on their business. We do this by reintroducing fundamental concepts you've probably already heard of, but that may not be top of mind as you put out fires, chase deals, and vigorously wash your hands every 15 minutes. More than an ivory tower discussion, we will supply you with strategies and tactics you can implement immediately, actions you can take today to see meaningful results tomorrow. Today's subject, as I mentioned, is business cycles, a concept that goes hand in hand with economic cycles. How should we, as business people, respond to conditions when the economy charges forward or when it lumbers along and slips into hibernation? This is obviously very timely. We just came out of the longest bull market in history, brought to a screeching halt by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, more than ever, it's time to work on our businesses. And with that, I have on the line the consigliori himself, my father, Pasquale Scopoliti. How you doing, Papa? Fantastic! Great. So <laughs> let's get right into it. At this point in your 34-year career, you've just about seen it all in terms of economic conditions, yes? Yes. So here's what I want to do. Let's let's take a few minutes to go historical and talk about the big swings of the past three and a half decades. I have Three questions for you, so we can move quickly through them. Um, consider them a prompt. What happened to the market? What triggered it? And you know, what'd you learn? What'd you take from it? And so, since you know we're going back 34 years, why don't we start with the uh, the first of those uh, big swings? And let's go back to 1987 with Black Monday.
1: What a year!
0: What a day! <laughs> so,
1: you said, what happened? Yeah. Let- Okay, let's address that first. Computers. None of us knew back then what they meant or what they could do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Black Monday was a computer-triggered collapse of the stock market. Hmm. And it was the first such collapse since the 1929 collapse that led us into the depression of the 30s, over which we only came out of in the 1940s and that due to World War II. Mm -hmm. So uh, in 1987, these computers had the ability to trigger selling. And this selling spiraled viciously downward. And we had the greatest collapse since 1929 as a result of computers. There was no fundamental
0: change in the market at that time that's what's happened it's basically yeah go ahead it was like one computer okay so we've got a, a sale order that's being put through and other computers are seeing that and then what sort of like a vicious cycle of computers seeing more selling and so there's Absolutely. So think,
1: yes. So think about these
0: vast funds, often uh, retirement
1: funds, pension funds, mm-hmm. right? With billions upon billions of dollars in their management, there's no way to manage such large funds personally or individually. And so in 1987, we were using computers for the first time to do so. And when those selling triggers were hit, they they, exactly, as you said, they hit one fund, they hit the next fund, they hit the next one. Cascaded. Yeah, cascaded in a vicious spiral down. That Mm -hmm. was
0: the only reason for the collapse. There was no other reason. How did you respond to that personally? Give us a little bit of context of what you were doing at the time. I
1: was a commodity
0: options salesman so I had a commodity options
1: license I was a, a a broker I was not a trader so I I don't have floor experience or what's called back office experience I was a salesman I served customers so that's front office and there we were in our brokerage firm, standing around our Reuters display, seeing the market collapse. And all of us, every one of us, all the brokers, were standing there in front of it. We're looking at it, and everybody's freaking out. And I'm going, This is getting boring. So I went and got back on the phone. First thing I did was call all my customers and explain what's going on. Mm. And I can't tell you, Nico, how much they appreciated that call. Oh, I bet. I bet they didn't understand. They didn't know. No. They understood. And and I gotta make, I gotta brag for a moment. I had sold all of my options on a limited risk where you could lose all the money you put in, but mm-hmm. no more than that, right? I'd sold that, limited risk. Sure. So that when I called my clients, I'm going, "This is not a good day for us guys. <laughs> yeah. And so, but they appreciated the call. And then as soon as I was done with that, started making cold calls. I started okay. calling prospects. Why? Because a down day in the market, is a day to buy. Mm-hmm. That's why.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So yeah, I got a lot of cred for that. I, no, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> for you. Um, so 1987. Then this happens in October, but then it, it seems to swiftly transition into a comeback. We start the beginning of a of a new bull market. Um, it, I mean, I don't know how many days or weeks pass, but it's it, it seems pretty immediate fairly uh, what occurred
1: was that the new york stock exchange and all of its technology mm-hmm. engineers behind you know all these geniuses sure. they started putting in protective measures I really don't understand what they are but they're like triggers where we slow the market down or we stop trading etc mm-hmm. especially if it's merely due to a technical and when I say technical I mean technology sure. you know the computers are kicking into their selling mode they put You know, they put supports in or, you know, you back off, you stop the trading or you slow it down. And that is what it took back then. We took charge over the computers. And the interesting thing about that is that once that got through to the rest of the market, buyers Mm -hmm. and the technology and the traders behind the market, it started to build the next and coming bull market again, because it was the only reason that we'd fallen in 87.
0: Okay okay and and some of those triggers have been recently um oh yeah in place or or some of those triggers well engaged again. however you say that engaged thank you yeah um recently <laughs> and and we hear about that it's like it starts to drop and 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 it triggers a a break in trading um perhaps for that for that very reason to, to yeah it's a wonderful spirals thing. and and even to give people to like step back a moment and, and breathe and reassess, like, where are we at?
1: Yeah, and maybe um, this
0: is a buying moment. Sure, sure. And we okay. certainly don't want the computers controlling it. This is yes. a human thing. Yeah. So Black Monday comeback, then, you know, we, we, we name all these things retrospectively, but we yeah. from, from 1990 to 2000, we've got a period now called the Roaring 90s. Tell me about that. Well, the first thing that happened was the gulf war number one
1: mm-hmm. uh, so george hw bush puts together a coalition you know i can't remember was it 48 was it 96 there were a lot of nations that joined into that coalition and so he sent five hundred thousand soldiers through kuwait into iraq and i think it took like three weeks to win the mm-hmm. war sure Uh, Now, following that, there were like 10 years of no-fly zone control and et cetera, but the war was won. And the impact of winning that war was gigantic. The historical context that you got to put that into is that the last war that everybody remembers was the Vietnam War, which Mm -hmm. didn't go so well. (laughs) So in the Gulf War of the early 90s, we kind of like hey, we can do this, we can make something right. And that really impacted the mood of the international market. But then the ultimate thing that led to the uh, boom of the 1990s, the roaring 90s. You know, I never thought the word roaring back then. For me, that's always the 20s, not the 90s. But at any rate, the boom of the 90s was absolutely based upon the collapse of the Soviet Union mm. and the victorious end of the Cold War. Okay. Okay. Coming out of that, then there's another element. I don't think it's quite as fundamental, but it's important. People love Bill Clinton. He was really popular. Yeah. So when George H.W. Bush loses, and for those who were there, read my lips, no new taxes, and yeah. then you know, we got taxes. <laughs> uh, Clinton was a breath of fresh air. I was a Democrat at the time, and I was a tremendous supporter of Clinton, and I was so happy. Mm. And my happiness just reflected everybody else's happiness at the time. People love Bill Clinton and his policies and his direction and his fresh, he was a breath of fresh air. We were ready to believe in America. We were ready to believe in capitalism. We believed mm-hmm. that capitalism had won and we were ready to buy into the stock market again. I, I got to give you one other component. From sure. that. <laughs> it's so funny. There was a wonderful book by a fellow named Francis Fukuyama called The end of history. (laughs) Referring to what? We actually believed that totalitarian communism, fascism, and dictatorships had come to their end back then. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, they would never happen again. Because as Fukuyama states in his book, liberal democracy has shown its strength It's resilience. It's profitability to everyone. And so it will move forward positively forever. And the rest of history is about doing good stuff, not correcting
0: against bad stuff. Uh, So the empire has been defeated. (laughs) Yes. And it's all... uh... And and the rebel forces are now taking over the galaxy.
1: All will be well. And you know what? There is another factor I got to point to quickly. In 1994, lo and behold, popular as Clinton was, we had the greatest midterm electoral turnaround Hmm. in Newt Gingrich and team taking over the House. Uh, And they did this with the... Contract with America, which was one of the most successful political strategies ever executed. And then Newt and Bill, they became friends. Mm. And we balance the budget. Wow. This is a mind-boggling concept. You know, back then I couldn't even wrap my mind around it. I still can't now. The balanced budget. That absolutely gave strength to the market, gave depth to it, and was a fundamental factor in the roaring 90s market. Mm -hmm.
0: Wow. That's fundamental. That really mattered. Yeah. Okay. So moving on, um, the roaring 90s, as it were, comes to an end. Uh, We go into 2000 and then 2001 and find ourselves in another situation Triggering a bear market. Now, um, yeah, it doesn't need mention, but always deserves mention. September eleventh, two thousand one, oh, yes. of course. Um, oh yes, that was the key factor, yeah. the biggest one. What um, What can you tell us about that and any of the other factors? Uh, I can, but what I'll do first is focus on the two thousand virus. <laughs>
1: oh, Y two K first. Yeah. Uh, the Y two K, and also there was a web bust. Mm. So at the end of the 90s, well, we got to go back to 93 with the creation of the World Wide Web, now known as the internet. At any rate, in 2000, I mean, in nineteen ninety four it really started to explode onto the scene I believe it was in 96 or 97 that I surrendered and signed up for my first email account I resisted that tremendously (laughs) but you know it was the wave of the world and by the 2000 virus days and the web days you know we had the first websites amazon.com and others that were exploding we had uh, browser wars started out by Mosaic and then sure. uh, you know Bill Gates with his internet yeah, Personal One
0: computing. Great,
1: oh yeah. One of the yeah. greatest stories, we won't get into it, is Bill Gates and the uh, transition to the Uh, complete investment of the Microsoft operation into Internet Explorer. All Mm -hmm. of that was going on in the 90s. And then we had all of these websites that were valued, you know, a hundred times their revenues or they had no revenues, et cetera. So it all collapsed in 2000. There were the consulting firms with the Y2K solutions. Y2K, everybody believed that the computer systems couldn't handle the transition from one century to the next, let alone one millennium to the next. Right. So the whole Y2K thing collapsed. There mm-hmm. really wasn't a problem. And so all the companies investing in that, and we had the web collapse. So that was the first stage. But then September 11th decimated our economic confidence like nothing in American history before I will forever, as long as I live, and I can do it right this moment, Nico, I can see those two towers collapsing. I can see them falling, and I can remember the economic fear that penetrated my heart. I will add, I can see and remember myself in that moment, understanding my personal business mandate as an economic warrior for America. And I hope that everyone listening today, at least in America, but really around the world, for capitalism and for freedom, for a free liberal democracy, economics is the foundation. And each of us
0: plays a part. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, interestingly, again, here, you know, in 1987, it seemed like there was a a, a swift move into growth again. Yes. Um, leading into the roaring 90s, then with the bear market triggered by everything we just discussed in 2001. um, It also seems to fairly rapidly switch back into growth mode from 2002 to 2007 with the housing boom. Absolutely with the housing boom, but it can't be
1: dismissed that George W. Bush, so uh, President 43, Mm -hmm. in executing wars against Afghanistan and Iraq gave us, I mean, he had a positive response. Uh, First, we had Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, who led the way through 2001's immediate attack. But George Bush rose as a national leader following. And by 2003, when we are already in a war with Afghanistan and executing our second war with Iraq, there was something that was satisfied, deep in the raging soul of America that Mm. immediately led to a boom in the stock market. Mm -hmm. We felt we were taking action that had to be taken. They had taken our two towers down. They had attacked our greatest city. They had attacked our economic center Mm -hmm. in Manhattan. And if we were forever going to be weakened by that, the stock market would never have come back the way it did so that those actions regrettable, though they may be from this historic standpoint here in 2020. And I do regret them. Now I was a supporter of them. Then there can be no question. They led into the coming bull market.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So 2002 to 2007, we're, we're growing again and we're confident again. Um, Then something big happened in 2008, 2009. Yes.
1: (laughs) To understand that, we do have to go back to the Clinton administration. Okay. What they put in place was a policy... Of aggressive loaning to people that we now know were absolutely not qualified for those loans. Mm-hmm. We know that now. It was actually understandable back then, had people been paying attention, but who among us was? I certainly wasn't. And, you know, it's got a good feeling to it. You want to bring everybody into home ownership that you can. And so the standards of how to make a housing loan were lowered all the way to the point of almost non existent. Now, how does this move forward into a great financial collapse through 2007 to 2009? Uh, You know, most especially in 2008, but showing up in 2009? It's in the following manner. All of those loans that were underqualified were high-risk loans that were eventually headed into default. Well, they got all bundled up. And back when this was happening, I didn't understand it, but I studied in 2009, 10, and 11 to try to come to terms with it. And the bottom line is what they do with these loans is they literally bundle them. They, they bring them all together into what is called a financial derivative so the product is based upon all of those loans bundled up or derived from them and what does that get turned into bonds but the famous term as some of us who were there including you I think yes. uh, might recall is junk bonds yes so they're based on loans that are probably not going to be repaid, but they're moved around in the market at extraordinary leverage and extraordinary profitability amongst all the loaning institutions with their overnight trades and everything else on and on. And so the leverage grew and grew and grew so that when we turn to the 2008 and 2009 collapse, what we've got is financial institutions, banking systems, not just trading operations, banking systems that have huge amounts of their assets in these junk bonds that are about to collapse. And so the term that arose that we all remember from back then is too big to fail. So the um, the, the Bush administration, as led by its chief economist, Paul Volcker, came up with a... Uh, a, a program to save america from too big to fail institutions and so there were these stimulus packages Mm -hmm. they drove the 2008 election they they drove the beginning of the obama administration and what we have to say in retrospect is that they probably did work for all their failings, and you know I didn't support them back then in retrospect, I gotta say I was probably wrong. they probably really did save America from a far worse collapse than would have occurred otherwise, and that I think is the trigger into the coming stage
0: well yeah i I, I wonder I mean again, you look back retrospectively and and apply labels to what 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 you see as having occurred from you know, slowly in 2009, and then with a, a like a quickening pace, um, we we went from 2009 to most recently February of 2020, in what's now referred to as the long slow recovery, indeed, from 2009. So perhaps programs like you know the TARP and, and the other the stimulus packages that you're referring to yeah, also um, already you may recall. Oh sure, <laughs> um, it may um. Uh, may have played a, a significant role in, in, in turning that around. They may least... have. There is a counter case.
1: Mm. The counter case is that we should, that there is no such thing as too big to fail, sure. that the forces of capitalism would have handled it, that we needed to let those institutions suffer the consequences of their failures, mm-hmm. and that the strength of our economy would have come through anyway. But that's, at this point, only theoretical. It can't be proven. It's only hypothetical because what actually happened was those stimulus
0: packages. And we did come out of it in this long, slow bull market. And what's been going on in the past 11 years since since that 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 uh, that great recession?
1: Well, I believe the single most important fundamental factor is belief, trust, love and joy over the Obama administration. Hmm. Even those who opposed his policies, and I confess I am one who opposed his policies. I was thrilled when he was elected. Absolutely. Yes. And then during the entirety of both of his terms, no matter how much I judged his policies or even his approach, wrong which i did and i came to be a stronger and stronger opposer of obama as those years went by there was always a part of my heart that was happy that he was president i didn't agree with him i didn't support his policies right but having our first black president since the civil war there's just no way for me not to be happy over that even to this moment i fondly recollect those emotions i've got much more critical judgments I could express, but they, they're they always dampened sure. by the joy of his election. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'll just continue. Please. That, I believe, is the single most significant fundamental factor to Mm. the long, slow bull market. I believe all of America and all of the world felt that. Sure. The entire world felt that. So it was a new day. And certainly on the Democrat side, consider the number of extraordinarily wealthy people that are passionate Democrats, complete Obama supporters, and how they flooded the market with their vast wealth and how they profited from this long, slow uh, bull market. And think about the slope of that long, slow bull market, Nico. Mm -hmm. It was just about perfect. I don't know, 20, 25, 30% upward, essentially the entire time until the election of President Trump. And we don't have to get into any politics. What we can call the Trump bull market – bent the curve upward. There's mm-hmm. no question about that. All you got to do is look at a five, maybe a six year chart of the Dow Jones. And you see that in 2016, the curve was bent upwards and Mm -hmm. all the way up until the recent coronavirus collapse that upward slope was maintained successively for three maybe three and a half years so there's the obama bull market there's the trump bull market and together they are the fundamental factors driving
0: those 11 years got it got it so looking over these 33, 34 years and, and, and listening to all of the, you know, the, the triggers and the dynamics at play. I think there's um, a couple things that I took note of technology um, working for or against us, yes. <laughs> starting out against us uh, as it were yes. seven. Um, but then really uh, pushing things forward significantly in the, in, in the nineties um, geopolitics, you know, what's, what's happening in terms of our relationship to other countries? Are we at war? Are we at not? Have we been attacked? Are we attacking elsewhere? Are we winning? Are we losing? Um, Just obviously economics and, and, you know, growth slowing or growth, you know, proceeding forward or, you know, just, just those, those fundamental aspects of it. Um, Another is confidence in leadership. Um, Yes. who, Who is president and how that, you know, the the choices the president makes, um, how they behave. Um, all of that is factors into how we feel about the world around us and then what we do with our money. Um, yes. And so those are, those are all things playing into it along with what I think is, is an interesting cycle that becomes evident where in, in, in all of these cases there, there are, Painful periods of recession or of contraction, um, and they feel at the time like they're going to last a, a long time. Um, yeah, like the Great Depression of the '30s, sure. only broken by World War II. <laughs> but if we look at at the actual dates here, and and we see that you know as not long after, yes, these bear market. Bear markets are triggered. We go into a recovery. We go back into growth. Um, it's it's um, it, it gives me some confidence to 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 see that trajectory. And even now, I mean, I'm not going to predict what's what's going to happen in the coming months or um, uh, years now. But the 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 history shows that you get a you get a you get you get punched in the face, but then you pull yourself back up pretty rapidly. Absolutely. You know, one more historical
1: point I'll add, the 87 crash came during the Reagan administration. Hmm. And the Reagan administration had created its own bull market following the Carter administration's collapse, right? Hmm. Now, I was not paying stock market attention until the mid-'80s, so that's back in the Reagan era. And I was back then not (laughs) pro-Reagan. I was a very, very strong uh, liberal Democrat-leaning kind of guy. However, the Reagan bull market is you know, not a questionable thing. It's a fact. How, and so then in 87, when we got that technology-driven correction, it was in the face of American optimism as led by Reagan. And then under the George H.W. Bush administration, we got that rapid return to a positive market that you just identified.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a stable pattern. It's an absolutely stable pattern. We can even see it during World War II Mm -hmm. when the Great Depression was finally brought to an end. You know, there were, during the Depression, those wonderful fireside chats that FDR gave us, uh, most especially epitomized by his phrase, the only thing to fear is fear itself now fdr really didn't bring us out of the depression it really was world war ii that did it but even there he was a tremendous leader he saw that this global conflagration was one that had to be engaged and he led the way there he's got to be honored for that and that is
0: what broke the great depression Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay well let's take a quick break and when we come back let's discuss the strategic fundamentals. What, what do we know about business strategy as a result of the uh, cycle analysis and, and the research into that and, and looking at these stable trends over the past 100 years? Okay, we're back. So let's talk strategic fundamentals. What do we know about business strategy as a result of business cycle analysis over the past hundred years. And let's start, let's start with the bear market as versus bull. Well, when we look back, there's been a growing field of business
1: analysis at least those hundred years. There was actually a great deal of work that was done during the uh, 19th century, really dating back to the creation of the railroads and the rise of these gigantic businesses that created what's called modern managerial business or Mm -hmm. modern, you know, uh, the modern managerial era is what it was actually called uh, by historians uh, in the 20th century, looking back to to those years. At any rate, there's been a tremendous amount of analysis over this inevitable thing called the business cycle. And in the bear market, what has been established as the fundamental strategy is that you want to lower prices to gain market share. You want to be able to compete with as little lowering of quality as possible, but you want to lower prices and you want to absolutely invest everything you've got into marketing and sales and pick up market share. So while your competitors are beginning to fall and struggling, and especially if you are able to underprice them in the market and gain the market share that they're losing, then they're falling off during that bear market and you are positioning yourself in the strongest possible way for the coming
0: bull. So lower prices and so if there are like two fundamental changes that you're making, what are they? it's lower prices but you want to not drop quality that's really important okay. yeah you, you
1: must not cuz if you do then everybody's going to go not only are you cheap but you're not really all that good and so you got through by the skin of your teeth the power position is to lower prices down to the you know to the lowest possible profit margin without dropping quality so that's that's number 1 and then number 2 was Punch it. You gotta get out there. You gotta be bold. You wanna invest in marketing, you wanna invest in advertising, you wanna invest in sales, you wanna build your sales capability, and you wanna get out there and bring home the business.
0: It makes sense to me that if you're able to maintain your quality in your product or in your services while responding, like saying like, you know, Hey, we're going to give you exactly what you've always expected from us, but we're going to, we're going to cut you a break. We're not going to charge you as much for it because we recognize the state of the economy. We know people are hurting. Um, That's the kind of thing that would, uh, I think engender loyalty, gratitude among your clients. It's like, Hey, you know, thank you for making things a little bit easier for me, but not, you know, but not reducing, what value you're offering to me? It's like I really appreciate that, um, and it you know I'm I'm going to be loyal to you as a result. At just a slightly deeper level of management,
1: you can actually increase quality as you cut unnecessary costs. So so the pressure of the downturn in the economy, where your profit margins are dropping takes away a lot of the fat out of your system, out of the, the, all the slushy stuff that nobody's really paying attention to because you don't have to. So if you are cutting unnecessary costs, if you're dropping product lines that you really don't need to be in, tightening up your entire structure, you can actually increase quality. And when you do that while lowering costs, this whole warm message we're in this together comes through and engenders and exactly the loyalty that you're talking about
0: so how is then investing in marketing and sales somehow i mean is it is it then different as part of this bear market Strategy, or it seems to oh, me, yeah, you should always it's, be investing in marketing and sales. No, I mean you should
1: always be investing in it, of course, but it doesn't have the same necessity in mm-hmm. the uh, bull market or the uh, uptick, upticking economic, you know, direction. It's not as necessary, especially not if you positioned yourself powerfully in the bull market, mm-hmm. in a. Uh, bull market, pretty much everybody is open-minded and ready to move forward one way or another. So while you wanna have good bull market advertising and marketing and salesmanship, et cetera, it lowers the, the intensity factor on the necessity lowers so what you want to be doing in the bull market is actually in some senses the reverse because you're gonna raise your prices and now all of those customers that you picked up during the uh, hard times Mm -hmm. you're gonna be filtering through which one of those are the most profitable to you which are the best customers and you're gonna be shedding customers in the bull market that are not the best customers to have that are dragging you down when you want to be rising. And also you want loyal customers who in the bull market will be ready to share the profit with you and allow you to raise prices. Now you don't want to like, you know, Ever gouge the market, but in a bull market, you increase your profit margin and you raise your prices. Again, you do not want to lower quality, but almost nobody ends up seeming to have that much strength in a bull market. A bull market is like a siren song, right? It just makes everybody so happy that quality
0: almost automatically drops. It shouldn't, but it's just the real, you know, the real world, it's just how it happens. So it just sounds like they're polar opposites. So you, in, in one market, you can lower prices in the other market. You can, you can raise prices quality. You know, you, you should maintain that throughout because I think, you know, and those companies quality... that do attain phenomenal greatness, but they're mm-hmm. very rare. Yeah. Um, you know, quality I think relates directly to, to people's uh, just emotional response to you and to your brand and, and, uh, Absolutely. and their loyalty to you. So at, at any point, um, low quality products or low quality services are, are going to be a detriment to you. Um, but you don't have to invest quite as fervently into marketing and sales in the bull market. Is that what I'm taking from this? Well, you really don't need to be gaining market
1: share in Mm -hmm. the bull market the way you have to in the bear market. It's a a survival necessity in a bear market. In a bull market, you can be very selective and you can actually shed unprofitable customers during a bull market. Mm -hmm. So it, it leads to a totally different kind of marketing, advertising, and absolutely, a totally different kind of sales pitch. Uh, Let's talk about that sales pitch for just a quick second. I know we'll be doing more on that later. Uh, But that sales pitch in a bull market is all about maximizing your customer's return on investment massively and joining in and building a vision for how to conquer the planet together. That's the kind of sales that we're looking for, you know, be it in a boardroom or be it over the telephone or by whatever means, you're looking for exciting, thrilling, Uh, And we're going to conquer, you know, this, let's go climb Mount Everest together type stuff in a bull market. None of that stuff sells in a bear market. In a bear market, you're, you're attaining necessity. Level, mm-hmm. we are here to meet your needs. We are going to, you know, be in this with you, as we were just saying a moment ago, and we're going to help you get through these difficult times. If you're trying to sell climbing Mount Everest in mm-hmm. a bear
0: market, you're not going to pick up many customers. So, it's the difference between selling survival and selling prosperity,
1: yeah, or even selling necessity and. A more gentle kind of progress as opposed to explosive growth Mm -hmm. yeah it's just matches the mood Um, exactly you've got to be in sync with that mood and uh, another one of the tactical uh things that we'll probably work on more later is that there is always a way to be in sync with the market when we understand these fundamental strategies and those people who are able to do that always have an audience and always have a willing customer. Now they may be more resistant in this time and over that time, like in a, Bull market, you're going to have a lot more competition. So, you're going to get a lot more competitive pressure in a bull market. In a bear market, you're going to have people that are scared out of their heads. So, Mm -hmm. you're going to have resistance from fear in that bear market. But if you know how to get in sync with that, there is always a way
0: to find your audience in any market condition. Let's talk a bit about tactics then, unless there's more strategic stuff you want to cover. No, that's good. how do some of these strategic fundamentals then apply how do we implement them and i mean if you want to speak to a specific example um specific type of business we can um i know you know one of my favorites of course is executive recruiting but we can go generic or specific as you like well let's talk about executive recruiters here for a moment
1: During the roaring bull market of the 90s is when I got started coaching and serving recruiters. And one of the things that I thought, and I was wrong, I thought was a myth was this four hours on the telephone mandate that was so famous back then. It's still somewhat famous to this day, but it's it's fallen. Uh, Again, it always falls in a bull market. I came to understand that at the end of the bull market in the 90s. So uh, we were told that you had to be on the phone four hours a day, but when I would do the numbers, I would see either no correlation or even a negative one. It was then when we shifted into the bear market after 2001, and it really took me through till 2003 to complete my numerical analysis of it, that I saw that those in a bear market, those recruiters who could get on the phone and be connected speaking to prospects and customers and candidates uh, for that four-hour rule were the ones who absolutely catapulted. And this is what really blew my mind. Those who had that ability in the bear market made more money than they had in
0: the bull market. Well, the ratios are are, going to change between bear and bull where in, in a bull market, the effort required to get the same amount of results is going to be less because you're meeting less resistance. Exactly. You have to invest less to get the return in, in, in the, and especially if
1: you're positioned and
0: have relationships. Sure or are known, or
1: even the ultimate, you know, in recruiting, called a power broker. I don't know that everybody else should be let in on that term, but at any rate, when you have those, when you're that person where people say, oh, we really need, you know, the best of the best to help us, let's call Nico. When you're that person, then uh, in a bull market, the market really is coming to you that in in a way that in the bear market, it will not be no matter how well known you are. You have to go to the bear market. You can't expect it to
0: come to you. The ratio then of effort to results, um, it it grows. Well, the effort side grows, but the amazing thing is when you get
1: it right, the reward side grows even more. So the best recruiters, and those are the people that I know the most, having served them since 1993, uh, the best recruiters absolutely make more money in a bear market than they do in a bull. Is that because there's less competition? Absolutely, and it's because they know how to find that key talent that can handle the most challenging conditions in the business cycle. And that's actually the the most important tactic in addition to just reaching out and taking yourself to the market, Far more aggressively than you needed to during the bull. Uh, the best tactic for recruiters, and this applies really to any kind of selling, and, and we'll make that shift in a moment. The best tactic for recruiters is to find that most exciting talent, the kind of talent that says, oh, Finally, we're in a bear market again. Now I can show my real capabilities. So the kind who is attracted to solving the worst problems you've got, the kind who's confident that like in a bull market, it might be hard to say, look, I really am the best and you got to hire me today. In a bear market, that's a much easier pitch. And I'm talking for the talent, right? So the talent is meeting with a a prospective hiring manager, and they're looking them in the eye, and they're as confident as can be, and they're saying, you know, uh, if you really want to make the best decision for moving forward under current conditions, you will not find a higher caliber individual than myself. You'll regret it if you don't hire me. Now, most will never be that aggressive. you know, Sure, like sure. The, the message is in there. And it's that kind of a person you want to hit the market with.
0: Hard as hard can be in a bear market. Now, you you mentioned that it's the, the best recruiters. And you use the term the best. I do. Can, can you unpack that for me? They're the
1: ones who understand the ultimate value of the recruiting proposition. That they are bringing talent to a company that will change the emotion of the company the day they arrive. They're gonna literally hit the ground running. I know it's a cliche, but they're gonna they're gonna show up and they're gonna start moving things forward immediately. The ancient phrase, and this is not just in recruiting; it's in all sales. We get to that moment where we've got open communication with our prospect, and we want to know what is it that keeps you up at night. I And, you know, when I do that, I say, by the way, are you familiar with the what is it that keeps you up at night technique? <laughs>
0: sure.
1: And, and then they laugh a little and then I go, okay. So I'm asking, what is it that keeps you up at night? And they laugh and we talk. Well, these candidates, this talent is the kind that allows you to get a little bit better sleep than you could before they arrived that 's what you want to take to the market, hmm. and that 's what the best recruiters know how to do. They know how to cut through all the resistance, the distraction, the uh, non engagement they know how to reach through and actually connect and then show the individual on the other end of the phone how to move forward, given current
0: conditions talking talking tactics i can I can tell you that I have an immediate negative response to the you know what keeps you up at night um (laughs) it's just so cliche it Um, is but at the same time that's so true uh, well i i'd say that now that we're in this new era you know it there's going to be a lot more late nights for business people out there for for everyone out there and so the person who who calls you up, the recruiter who calls up and actually is able to support you and provide you value that is going to help you get a better night's sleep, I think now, and as compared to the bull market we just came out of, I think um, that makes more sense. It does, but you got to remember, I really, I, I kind of like define old
1: school now. Oh, sure. My sales training was classical. I am a classically trained salesman from the sure. 1980s. And so I become comfortable with all of these things. And I've got, you know, that confidence that I'm doing something that is really helpful to the other person. Hmm. Let's try to make this a little bit less old school for our Listeners. So, if you want to speak in more management terms, you might still be somewhat aggressive, but a little bit softer toned and not quite so cliched, at least in that old school way. And it'd be something like, you know, when we're looking at your current talent profile in your business division, office, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I'm just going to say in your division, if you're looking at your current performance profile and your talent, where are your people performing the best? Where are they performing the worst? And are you able to imagine right now that we could provide you someone who would give you an impact to move forward on either side of that equation? So can we improve your positive performance and can we reduce the negative performance of your team? Makes sense.
0: It's the same tactic, believe it or not. It's It's just presented with a totally different tone. (laughs) Sure. 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 Are there any other specific tactics to recruiting that we should discuss? I know you wanted to talk about uh, more generic sales. I I do. Uh, Give me a moment.
1: You sent out an emailer recently, Nico, which is absolutely spectacular. And in it, relative to this coronavirus situation, your counsel, and it was just simply awesome, counsel, was to reach out, and connect with people that you already know with no business purpose whatsoever, but actually to simply connect. Yeah, no ulterior motive. No ulterior motive of any sort. Now, when I was reading your email, uh, I had a fairly deep response to it. Because in any market condition, be it a positive you know, business cycle or a negative one, it is the, the, the difference between the best recruiters and the rest are that they don't have that fundamental capability. And by the way, I don't really buy on for the ulterior motive because we're presenting profit enhancement. But at any rate, I'm a true capitalist and unapologetic. But at any rate... Um, the the best recruiters, no matter what their motivation to be on the phone is, they are on the phone and they're using, of course, you know, text messaging, LinkedIn, obviously email, every means of connection. But eventually they really do have to have a live telephone conversation. And when that occurs, that connection that you're talking about Mm -hmm. without ulterior motive and having nothing to do with a business purpose for the call, but rather that human bond, that's the actual magic mark. That's the place. That's where it happens. And the best recruiters are always able to do that and the rest struggle, and it's hit and miss. And one of the big problems I'm often uh, brought in to help with is that people serve well as long as they've got positive chemistry and everybody likes each other and works well immediately. But not all of our customer or candidate relationships go that way. And so when we have to build a stronger bond of connection where we've got resistance, we've got people that are evasive, that maybe there are misaligned objectives, et cetera. Dealing with that is the kind of thing that I do a great deal of my coaching in. But again, it comes down to that actual connection. So in your email, I think you you stripped away everything outside and got to the heart of the matter. Mm-hmm. So that would be the other tactical advice that I would strongly put forward when you're on the phone, whether it's for you know the, what you did in your email or any other business purpose whatsoever, you're always looking for that spark of actual connection. Let me say that one more way. No matter who you meet, you might like them more, And you might like them less, but it's never going to be 100%. You're not going to like everything about another person. You're not going to hate everything about another person. So when you want to make this connection, you want to look into your heart honestly. It takes self-awareness, and it takes real-time presence. So you can't be wandering, and you can't be multitasking. You've got to be on the phone with that person. And what you're looking for is to find something you actually and really, not faking it, what you actually and really do like about the other person.
0: We're we're entering into this period of social isolation, and yes. and I think that you know people are going to be hungry for for connection, um, but they're also going to have less tolerance for a lack of authenticity. Yes, um, and when when you're looking at the world around you and and feeling like you know when. <laughs> when the value of time is so apparent, when it's like, this is, you know, my time is precious. Uh, you're not going to want to be sold to in the absence of some sort of a bond and some sort of a, some sort of a relationship. And so I think I'm, I think I, I follow you and I agree that the bond, the connection, um, being genuine, in connecting with people is is going to be critical to 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 build a relationship and to and to move any kind of business forward. Absolutely right. Let's turn to the more general business
1: conversation. Yes, yes. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that bond in a moment. But first, a business conversation at any time always has to be based on an extremely explicit value. This is one of the greatest mistakes I see in business negotiations all over the place. People are like fighting over price or terms or whatever. And the actual value that underlies the negotiation has not been isolated, established, and made absolutely known. In fact, I can tell you when I'm negotiating, people often get a little bit impatient with me because I won't move forward to price or terms or anything like that. If I don't know that the value has been made True. absolutely explicit and I'm kind of immovable and now being older I can be you know kind of irascible if you will at any rate that establishing of value it, it's the homework that we salespeople and business people in general so often fail to complete we need to know what that value is and we need to be able we were taught back in the 80s that if you couldn't express your value in 15 seconds or less on the telephone you already lost the conversation. So you've got to know. Now, I don't know that I I live by, I know I don't live by the 15 second rule anymore. I worked real hard at it back then uh, and I kind of mastered it. But really it's not so much the amount of time or even what you say or even the topic that you're talking about as that you know what your value is. And at the first moment that that value needs to be presented, you're instantly ready from inside your gut because you know what your value is. So if people will do that homework, and again, this, this is absolutely fundamental to all selling, but it's absolutely especially true when it comes to, to the shift from a down market to an up market and from an up market to a down market because you have different values as we previously discussed in our strategic conversation. So as these values shift, you have to be on top of them. You've gotta know exactly what the value is and be able to put that forward intuitively, naturally, right from your heart. Now, when that's the case, and here's why I went there, we learned in what was called, and you were the guy who introduced this to me way back when, uh, in on Web 2.0, Web 2.0 during uh, 2007 up to 2009 is when you were like pulling me kicking, kicking and scratching and clawing into the 21st century. There was this thing you'll remember called No Like Trust and Do Business. Yes. When you you can't just reach out and try to make people know you, especially not like on a cold call. And even when you're doing your email work or your in-mail work or whatever other marketing you're doing, knowing you is not a fundamental value, but it's an absolute necessity. So that's why we have to know what our value is, be able to put that forward. So we've got a basis for the call or the conversation or the negotiation, we've got a basis for it. And then we can slow down and start getting to know people and letting them get to know us. And we can lower the pressure on the conversation. We can lower our aggression in the moment and we can find how we learn to like each other, ultimately trust each other. And that's the foundation of any positive business relationship. And if we need to apply that specifically to the bull and the bear market, we can.
0: But I think maybe our audience gets the idea. I think so. I think so. well, awesome. um any uh, any parting additional advice? any anything to wrap us up? There is a daily
1: rhythm, not only to sales, and it's most especially true on sales, but it's true of all business, Nico. And we talked about this in a previous podcast, the suppressed elements of daily success. I just want to review one aspect of that, okay especially in a downturn, a bear market. It is mandatory that you awaken in the morning with a little bit of time to work on your self First, mm-hmm. if you go jump on the phone, uh, and in the meantime, you know a screen is running and you're seeing all the the next horrible, terrible thing that's happening sure. uh, from one day to the next, and you're hearing this on the, you know, if you actually get through to somebody, they're talking about all of this other stuff, and it's hard to get them focused. If you just show up and try to do that, you know, not only will you not be on the phone very long or engaged positively in your mission, whatever that may be, so you'll be you'll be shrinking and falling back away. One of the things we used to say uh, before cell phones is that in those times, the phone itself weighed a thousand pounds. It was so hard to get somebody to pick up the phone because they're just like, they're scared of what's going to happen on the phone. It's like, it's dangerous out there. Well, the truth of the matter is it really isn't. It's not dangerous. And in fact, the world is literally waiting for you to reach out and help, but you can't do that if you haven't taken the time to invest in yourself, your mind, your heart, and soul in the morning, envisioning what you're going to do, seeing all of these things, reestablishing your value, recommitting, dedicating yourself to be knowable, likable, and trustworthy so that you can build business in these times. All of that is a type of mental, emotional, and spiritual preparation, and it takes time. It, there is no greater investment you can make in mastering the tactics of a bear market than the time you spend before you get started working. Awesome.
0: Well, I want to thank everyone for listening today. And I'd like to assure you that everything we do is dedicated to helping business people like you weather the storm and grow in all conditions. Make the strategic changes in your business that align with the new cycle we've just entered, and you'll not only survive, but thrive and come out on the other side even stronger. Don't forget to check out Conciliori.com to get started on your leadership journey. And until next time, business is a hunt and luck is overrated. So from the Scopoliti family to you, good hunting.